0: Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Romans chapter 5. You can also flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 and put a finger there. Thanks, Actually, Romans 4, I'm sorry. I said 5. If you need a Bible, uh, we do have some copies back here in the back that you are welcome to grab. And if you don't have a Bible, then please take one and let that be our gift to you. Today, there are also a number of resources back there for you guys to check out. All of those things are free. Feel free to take what you need and uh, use however. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to read all of this chapter this morning, so it's kind of a lengthy text. So, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. All right. That's a lot. So let's take just a moment and uh, pray and ask the Lord uh, to communicate his truth into our hearts this morning through his spirit. Father, we thank you again for this time together, and we do pray this morning, Father, that your word will not return void. We pray, God, uh, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would impress on our hearts the truth of your word, uh, not so that we might become smarter or more intelligent, But so, Father, we might apply those things to our lives and actually put them into practice. God, help us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers as well. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, let's quickly just kind of do a recap of where we have been. far in the book of Romans. Um, This book is a letter, as most of you know, it's sometimes called an epistle, which is just a word attributed to letters in the New Testament. Um, And it's a letter written both to Jews and non-Jews, who are called Gentiles, living in the city of Rome. Romans chapter 1 covered Paul's kind of introduction of who he was to the people in Rome, and he started building this case Against kind of the entire world, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, this case that we are all guilty before God. The reason, though, for writing this letter was to share the gospel and to teach that our righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not through faith in the law, the law of Moses, but through faith in Christ. And um, apart from him, we can do nothing to earn freedom from our sin or earn righteousness on our own. Chapter 2 was all about admonishing the Jews. It was really directed only towards them. And it was designed to let them know that living by the law or like resting in the fact that they had been physically circumcised did not in and of itself make them righteous in God's eyes which they believed. They believed that they were following the covenant promises that God had made to guys like Abraham, who we read about, and guys like Moses, and that by following those covenant promises, by keeping the law of Moses, and by being circumcised, that they were actually being made okay in God's sight. And what Paul says is, no, that's not true. And that perhaps came quite as a shock But Paul stressed that by living by rules and regulations really only brings judgment. The law is primarily good for showing us our sin and condemning us in our sin. Paul concluded that a true Jew was one that has experienced not just physical circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. Then in the last chapter, chapter 3, Paul completed that whole accusation that he made against both Jews and Gentiles, that as people we are all guilty before God. And then he switched gears by explaining that the righteousness that comes through Christ um, is, is like the most important thing that we could know about and, and the most important thing that we could be placing our hope in. So rather than pl- placing our hope in our ability to like, follow the law perfectly, our hope is instead... In Christ, And it is through Christ and his sacrifice that we are justified or made righteous before God. And so two weeks ago, we looked at that word justification. What does that mean? How does that relate to our experience of Christianity in today's world? So Romans 4, which we just read, is proof that faith... Has always been the means for justification. And Paul reflected back to the Old Testament, back to the original patriarch Abraham. And what he said was, Abraham was also justified by faith, not just works. And so to illustrate his point, Paul used, um, Paul used that illustration to prove that Gentiles were also part of the promise that had been given to Abraham because he says, listen, this promise was given to him before he was even circumcised. And part of the promise was that he would be the father of many nations. He believed God, and so his faith was attributed to him as righteousness. And ultimately, what he says is that the exact same thing is true today. Our faith in Christ is key. And if we have faith in Christ... Righteousness, Not our own righteousness, because we really have no righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ will be counted to us. So here's what I want us to zero in on today. W- what exactly is faith? Because Paul has talked about faith a number of times here in the first four chapters of Romans. What exactly is it? I know that might seem like Christianity 101. It might seem like something that we should all, like, hopefully, have like, a quick answer for. But the reality is... That this is something that Bible scholars even today argue about. And and if what Paul is saying is true, then faith is like a critical component of our justification. But yet somehow, it's it's something different than just good works. It's something different than just doing the right thing. It's not just something that we do to be reconciled to God. So here is just a few places. Paul's talked about faith already. So here are just a few places where he's talked about it thus far in the book of Romans. The very beginning, Paul introduces himself. He says, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. In other words, this is not something I'm coming up with. Like this is something that has been foretold. It's something that's been promised concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh Was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So notice that he links that word obedience to faith. That also jives with what we read in chapter four about Abraham, right? God called Abraham to do certain things, and Abraham said, Okay. And he did what God called him to do. So hold on to that word obedience because it's key here. For the sake of his name among all the nations, not just among Jews, but among all nations. Later on in chapter one, here's what he said. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what we said when we talked about that passage was that it maybe doesn't mean what you think it means. Some people read that, the righteous shall live by faith. And what they think it means is that the the righteous shall live by like a Christian worldview. Or the righteous shall live by kind of a moral system. But really what it means is that the righteous by faith shall live eternally. Because of faith, we shall be made righteous in the sight of God, our unrighteousness will be removed. We will be given the righteousness of Christ. And as a result, we shall live as opposed to die. In chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, this is one of the most famous passages in this entire book. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. See in both places. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now what I want to do this morning is I want us to go to another book in the New Testament and to what is sometimes called the faith chapter. This is Hebrews 11. If you would turn there with me and just keep your Bible open. We'll kind of flip back and forth. Here's probably the most famous verse on faith in the entire Scripture. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's quite possible when I pose that question, What is faith? That if you've grown up in church, if you've been around the church for any length of time, it's possible that your brain went here. I know what faith is, right? The the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As we've said before, the New Testament was written in Greek If you know anything about translating languages, it's real difficult, right? I think sometimes we think that translating languages is all about just looking at individual words and saying, okay, well, the Greek word is this. The Greek word for faith is pistis. And so every time we see the word pistis, we just need to scratch that out and write faith. And you just go from word to word and you just take whatever the Greek word is and you apply its English version or its English cognate and boom, you have a translation. But that's not how it works at all. Gary's been uh, sitting in Greek classes here these last few months. He knows all about this. The reality is is that like sentence structure is completely different. Like we've been all raised to like understand the rules of English, but we don't necessarily understand the rules of other languages. So if you just did what I talked about, if you just took individual words and stuck the English word in there, well one, you're, you're having to find the word that is like the closest To the word in Greek, closest to the intention of the word. But then if you do that, you're going to have a sentence that is virtually unreadable, right? Because the order of words is different. So a big part of the task of translating is not just figuring out, well, what word means that in English? A big part of the task of translating is also figuring out how do we order these things so that it is readable and it makes sense? Because part of this is not just, you know, like, moving words around, it's also going, what's the point of this? Like, what is the author trying to communicate? What is the intention of the passage? So this is something, obviously, as we've said, was written in Greek, and in the Greek, here's what it looks like. There there are those two key words that we looked at, assurance and conviction, and in the Greek, it says, now faith is the, y'all want to cry it? Apostasis of things hoped for, and the elenchos of things not seen. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm indebted to Dr. Tim Mackey and his, his research around this topic, because he's, he's the one that kind of introduced me to some of this stuff, and it's absolutely fascinating. So in most of our translations, These words are being rendered in the way that we just read. Now, faith is the assurance, apostasis of things hoped for, the conviction, elenkos of things not seen. So if you have an ESV, an NIV, something like that, that's probably what you're reading. And those are fairly modern translations of the Bible. Those are fairly new um, ways of reading this verse. However... Let me ask you this, what does this mean to you? Like, what does this sound like to you when you read it? Well, to me, it sounds like something that is primarily internal or mental, right? We're talking about assurance and confidence. Sometimes you'll see... Obviously, conviction is there as well. These are all things that are kind of happening inside of you. They're happening mentally. And and it's almost like I need to to kind of get myself into a mental state to have assurance and confidence in Christ. I I need to get myself to this place where... where I'm able to do these things. It's almost like we're having to make some kind of a mental choice. But there is another, and some of you may have seen it this morning in your Bible, there's another very common translation that was the translation of this verse for for literally a few hundred years, and it looked a little bit more like this. Faith is the substance or reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, Now take just a moment and... Read those two and just note the differences between them. Assurance versus substance or reality. Conviction versus evidence. Those kind of mean two completely different things in many ways, right? This one seems to be all mental. Something that's happening internally. Something that I kind of have, it's a state that I have to kind of get myself into. Versus this is going, no, 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 this is something that's more experiential, right? It is is like this reality, right? And, and, and there's evidence for it as well. As I've researched this and uh, listened to a bunch of people, read a bunch of things who are way smarter than me, this seems to make way more sense, this second understanding and the older English understanding of this verse. It seems to make way more sense to me when we consider some of the things that are seen here in Hebrews chapter 11. So according to this, faith is not just a mental state, but instead faith is an experience. And, and, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that this second verse, this second option, if you will, more adequately conveys what we're talking about. So a popular notion in our world today is, well, I can't see God. I can't, like, hear God audibly. I don't really, like, know, no. Like, I don't know that God is there, but I hope he's there, right? And that's faith. Like, my faith is I don't really know, but I hope. That's oftentimes the way that it's understood by people. I, I think God is there, right? I, like, I, I've read the scriptures, and so my, that's what I... It's where I'm putting my trust, but there's still some doubt there as well. I I think, I hope, I'm going to have faith. It's like what we sometimes call blind faith, and that's actually not biblical faith. Blind faith is not biblical faith. Faith is not based on random outlandish claims, right? So if, if I, I love this illustration, I said, if there was, if I said there was a stool behind me this morning, I don't know for sure there's a stool behind me, but there's a stool behind me. Right? Do you guys see a stool behind me? It doesn't matter. There's a stool behind me. Right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down. Well, if I sit down, I'm going to fall. Right. So, so if I just kind of blindly go, I, you know, I don't know This true, no evidence, but there's a stool behind me, then what am I? Am I a person of great faith? No, I'm stupid. Right? I'm stupid. Like why, like, why would I just decide that there's something behind me to sit down on with, with like no evidence, like no, nothing pointing me in that direction? And this is the point of Hebrews 11. If, if you look on, the writer talks also, just like Paul did in Romans 4, he talks about Abraham. Look at verse 8. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. So did Abraham just wake up one morning and like kind of make this up? No right god spoke to abraham god called him out of the place where he was living like he had this real visceral experience of god we we read another one of those experiences this morning in genesis right where the, where these men come to him under the trees at mamre right so abraham has had these like incredible like things that you and i have never experienced abraham had experienced and so when god called him to go Right? It wasn't just based on, well, I hope there's a God out there. No, no, no. He had had this experience. He had had some evidence to suggest that this is the right thing to do. Right? And there's a promise there as well that's being made to him. Here's a land that I'm giving you for an inheritance, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. We saw another part of that promise this morning. Your wife, who is ancient, is going to conceive and bear a child. Like God is continually making these promises to Abraham. He's continually calling him to do these things. And and what's happening? Abraham is stepping into this, and he's finding that God is not all talk. God is actually faithful. And so as more promises come, as more requests come or commands come to Abraham, Abraham's not basing that stuff on just like conjecture or I hope this is the case. Abraham's basing it on something that has been experienced. Hebrews 11:11. By faith, Sarah received power receive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, since she considered him faithful, who had promised? Right? What had she seen? Well, she had seen everything that Abraham had said. Like she had gone with Abraham, right? She, she had seen them go to a land that they did not know. And come into it, and ultimately become wealthy, right? And powerful, and even in her old age, as we saw earlier, God tells them, "You will have a child." And at first, she, I mean, she laughs about it, right? But it's but it's kind of like this: Are you are you kidding me? Like, how in the world is this going to happen? But the writer of Hebrews says she considered him faithful. Hebrews eleven seventeen: By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Like, what would lead a guy to just take his son up up on a mountain and sacrifice him? Like, the only way that Abraham could do that is if he had some kind of evidence to suggest that God would be faithful to him, right? God had promised this child for years and years and years and years. His wife, who was ancient, gives birth to this child And then God says, sacrifice it. And Abraham says, okay, and binds him and takes them to the... Why would he do this, right? Because he saw God as faithful. It wasn't just hope. It wasn't just conjecture. There was some evidence there that guided him in the process. So so faith is not just blind. Instead, faith is a response of obedience based on evidence. It doesn't come out of thin air. But if we left it there, it could easily seem like, well, if I want to be justified before God, then all I have to do is these things. I have to adequately read the evidence and make a wise choice and then be obedient. But Paul says, no, that's not exactly right either. Because if that were the case, then you would have reason to boast, right? If you were just smart enough to look at things and go, okay, here's the right choice, then Paul says, it's kind of like if, if you do work and you get paid for the work you've done, well, that's not a gift. No, you, you've gotten what you were owed. You've gotten what you are due. But he says with Abraham, it wasn't some kind of payment he was receiving for being intelligent or making a wise choice. He wasn't, being, he wasn't credited as being righteous just because he was a smart guy. Turn back to Romans 4. says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, that's sort of confusing, but here's Paul's point. Abraham was not made righteous simply because he made good choices or did good things. Remember, Paul has spent all of this time reminding us here in Romans that we stink at making good choices, right? There are none who are righteous, not even one. We have beat that dead horse. If we said that God made Abraham righteous simply because he made good choices, then it would be like God repaying Abraham for his good deeds. The reality, and we don't have time to get into all of this today, but we will as we continue in Romans, is that God does a work in us through His Spirit of, of drawing us to Himself. So God is working outside of us to illumine our hearts to Him. Second Corinthians four six, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You grew up in youth ministry singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. This is, this is what we're talking about here, right? It's, it's not God help me to open the eyes of my heart. It's, no, this is something He is doing within you through His Spirit. Let, uh, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, He has shown in our hearts To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God is the one who awakens our hearts to see the beauty of Christ. To see him for who he is. Not just a wise choice, but literally the spirit of God working in us to wake us up to the reality of who he is. To illumine us. But what is he awaking our hearts to? To. Don't forget this. Romans 3 all of sinned and fall short of God and are justified by his grace as a, as a what? As a gift, not as payment, right? Not not as the response to your good work, not as what you are due for being smart or wise, but as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or atonement or satisfaction by his blood to be received, to be received, not taken, not procured, received by what? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So this wasn't just so that you might be saved, right? God's glory is also a huge part of this equation. Because in all of this, in Him giving His Son, He is righteous. Like We are seeing the fact that God is good and righteous, and that we are not. We are completely undeserving of His grace, but yet He gives it to us freely. He doesn't even make us earn it as if we could. He gives it to us as a gift. We see God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over our former sins. Amen. Like this is this is incredible news for us guys. Like this is news that should stir our hearts. Like not only to worship him, but to worship him by going, Lord, just like Abraham, whatever you want. Right? What are you calling me to do? Where are you calling me to go? Who are you calling me to? Like do, like do you need my things? Like what is it? Because of what you have done for me, because you have passed over my former sins, you didn't make me earn anything because I couldn't, I would have been up a creek, you've freely given this gift of your own son, who died violently and brutally on my behalf. And in this we see your righteousness, God, you are worthy of our praise and worship, you are worthy of all glory and honor. So what's our response to that? Our response should be the same as Abraham. Okay, what is it? We're, we're headed that way. We're going. It's obedience, right? So if faith is not just a mental conviction or a simple good choice, but instead it is based on evidence, then what's our evidence, guys? What is the evidence that we are basing this on? Well, there are potentially lots of answers to that question. Paul's already suggested here in Romans that we can just look at the created world, right? And, and we can see the handiwork of God. Like, we can see the, like just looking out this window at what's out there right now. Do, do you think this all just happened? Do you think this is all just like a, a cosmic coincidence, right? So we can look at the created world and recognize, man, there is something going on here, right? If this is a coincidence, like... We need to redefine what a coincidence is, because this is absolutely ridiculous right No, So there's something more happening here. The primary evidence, though, that God is real and good and righteous is Christ. It is Jesus, his only son. It is the fact that he gave us his only son as a gift so that through his atoning blood, we might be saved, even though we were undeserving of that. And we come across that evidence in two primary ways. First is the written word itself, right? So we come across the evidence of who Christ is, of who God is, and what he has done for us in his word. When we open the Holy Scriptures, we find not just a fairy tale, we find not just a story, we find evidence of who he is and what he has done. But the second place that we find this evidence is through the lived experience of people Of faith. So so we have the Bible, but notice that today both Paul and the writer of Hebrews were reminding us of the lived experiences of people of faith, wasn't he? He was pointing to Abraham, he was pointing to Sarah. What did they do? How did they experience this? I may not be able to see it all perfectly, but the evidence of Scripture and the experience of lives of faith can point us in that direction. Right, so I used that illustration of the stool earlier. So just imagine for a moment you're not seeing this. If I can't see this behind me, you guys can, right? You have experience, firsthand experience of the fact that there is something behind me, right? And and I, and I'm reading about it, man. There's something going on here. And what can you guys do? Even if I can't see it perfectly, you can direct me towards it, right? Like, you can help me to find it. Like, you can help me to rest in it. And part of the way that you are doing that is through living your life by faith, right? Not just for your own good, not just because, hey, I get a get-out-of-hell-free card, but no, 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 for the rest of the world, right? So that the whole world might be blessed. So when we encounter this notion It's actually a huge part of the mission of the church. And as a result, the mission that God has placed on your life and my life. Remember, Paul said that his mission was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And so as we go out from here, right? We're not living lives that are based on conjecture. We're living lives that are based on evidence, Evidence that we see in the Word of God and evidence that we see in the lived experience of people of faith around us, right? So that we can see the truth and the hope and the beauty of who Christ is and what He has done for us. And we have now been sent out with that good news, that gospel and the Spirit of God so that we might do the same thing that Paul was saying. So that we might bring about the obedience of faith in the lives of others. right? Calling people to be reconciled to God, through Christ, calling people to repent of their sin and believe in him, not just mental assent, not just in this cognitive way, but in a real way. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth of your word that we see this morning. We thank you that we are not uh, just formulating this based on some wild theories. Those religions are certainly out there. But Father, in this we have not only your word, but we have the lives of those who have gone before us. We have the experience of the apostles, the early church fathers, fathers the, the saints... Across the centuries, many of whom who have gone to their deaths seeking to bring about the obedience of faith in the lives of others. Father, evidence points to the fact that not only are you real, but you are good and loving and gracious and that you have given your only son so that we might not live in darkness anymore. Awaken our hearts, encourage our hearts through the power of your spirit today, that as we leave this place in even just a few moments, God, that we would see ourselves not just as people who've received a great gift, but people who have also been given an incredible calling, people to whom much has been given, and as a result, much is expected. And may we respond in the way that Abraham responded Not by trying to earn it for ourselves, because we can't, but instead seeking to be obedient in all ways to you. Because in your forbearance, you have passed over our former sins. And through the blood and body of Christ, we have been justified. We give you praise. Lord God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.